Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, corporate news media have never been the right place to look for thoughtful, inclusive consideration of affirmative action. For them, it's mostly a quote-unquote issue, a political football rather than a long effort to address the real, historical, and ongoing discrimination against non-white, non-male people in multiple aspects of U.S. life. But when it comes to the role that anti-discrimination, pro-equity efforts have had on Asian American communities, there are particular layers of myths and disinformation that benefit from exploring. Listeners will know that Asian American students are being used right now as the face of attempts to eliminate affirmative action or race consciousness in college admissions. It looks like the Supreme Court will rule on a watershed case this month. We'll talk about it with writer and cultural critic Jeff Chang, author of We Gonna Be All Right, Notes on Race and Resegregation, among other titles. We'll also hear some of an earlier discussion of the case, Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus Harvard, that Counterspin had last fall with Jeannie Park, founding president of the Asian American Journalists Association in New York and a co-founder of the Coalition for a Diverse Harvard. That's coming up this week on Counterspin. After the Supreme Court failed to find that Abigail Fisher had been denied admission to the University of Texas due to racial discrimination against white people, anti-equity activist Ed Bloom announced that he needed Asian plaintiffs to further the mission of eliminating affirmative action policies from college admissions. That's the short version and the basic context for the cases Bloom's group, Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., is bringing against Harvard and the University of North Carolina, cases the Trump-stacked court will likely rule on in June. Affirmative action has always been a difficult topic for a press corps more comfortable talking about individual racists than systemic white supremacy, and worlds more happy to gesture towards buying the world a Coke than to unpack the particulars of what actually needs to happen to get to anything like equity or reparation for marginalized people. So these are things we should look out for in the coverage we may see on the court's possible upcoming ruling. Jeff Chang is a writer and cultural critic and author of most recently, We Gonna Be All Right, Notes on Race and Resegregation, and of course, 2005's Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip-Hop Generation. He was a co-founder of the Student Coalition for Fair Admissions, organized at UC Berkeley in 1987, and he joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Jeff Chang. Thank you so much for having me, Janine. Well, people may see that Asian Americans are being used here in this in this fight and kind of used as a wedge between black people and white people, and may, they may understand that stereotypes are being employed to advance an anti-equal opportunity argument. But I still think that folks might not understand 
the subversion or the distortion that this all represents of Asian Americans' historical role in the creation, in the beginning of affirmative action policies. And in your super useful April piece for The Guardian, you talk about this erased history. Would you fill us in on some of that missing history? First of all, Asian Americans have been consistently polling in favor of affirmative action by really two to one. And that's, I think, a a fact that's often overlooked in media coverage of Asian Americans' perspectives on affirmative action. The history of affirmative action has Asian American influence all over it. If you look at the post-war period, the post-World War II period, and this rising period of civil rights, Japanese-American civil rights leaders were working alongside African-American leaders in arguing for equal opportunity and affirmative action. And they were doing it in, in the sort of context of looking at reparations, which was eventually granted the Japanese-American community for what had been done to them in terms of incarcerating them during World War II. But all the way through the 1960s, what you see is steady and powerful advocacy on the part of Asian Americans to have them included in programs around equal opportunity. And what we begin to see in the universities is is this bearing fruit in the 1970s and the 1980s. What you see, though, is by the 1980s, because of immigration, there's a much larger population of Asian American students who are applying for elite universities. And so at that time, universities begin to quietly and sometimes loudly take Asian Americans off of equal opportunity programs, despite the fact that there are a number of Asian American ethnicities, such as Filipino Americans and Southeast Asian Americans, who were still deeply underrepresented. And of course, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders continue to be deeply underrepresented in college admissions and university admissions all across the U.S. So at that particular time, what we also see is a surge of applications from this new generation of immigrants. And universities are also experiencing concern from white alumni about the competition that these Asian American immigrants, this new generation, is sort of providing against their sons and daughters at elite universities, where in in the past, legacy admissions have preserved their entitlement to slots at universities like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And so in the beginning of the 80s, what we begin to see is this sort of plateauing of the number of Asian Americans who are actually admitted to these universities. And community advocates in the Asian American community begin to get really concerned because the the number of uh, of applications is still skyrocketing, but the number of admissions has plateaued. And so there's this huge gap that they want to explore. And when they do, especially at UC Berkeley, under the leadership of a group of community leaders uh, there and a professor named Ling Chi Wang, they find that there have been a number of different types of changes that have been made in the admissions process that have actually discriminated against Asian Americans disproportionately and excluded them from admissions. And as studies pop up all across the country, at Brown University, at UCLA, at a number of other universities around the country, folks begin to find the same kinds of things happening. 
Well, and then the idea that there could be anti-Asian American bias in college admissions, but that that is not due to affirmative action policies. Here's where the conflation occurs and where the co-optation of the narrative occurs. That's exactly right. What Asian Americans are arguing for at this particular point is a sense of fairness in what is supposed to be meritocratic competition between white and Asian students for these slots. Affirmative action is a completely different track, and students are judged for affirmative action by a different set of standards because of the importance of increasing diversity in these elite universities. That's what the Supreme Court has ruled over and over again. And really, actually, if we go back to it, affirmative action was begun as a remedy for historic discrimination. And so that's the way that I think a lot of communities of color are seeing the need for these affirmative action programs, despite the fact that before the court, the only justification for affirmative action programs now, because of the Baki case in 1979, is this idea of diversity. Now, I'm getting to a lot of different types of things, but the main point here is to note that the Supreme Court, by getting rid of the historic discrimination standard for affirmative action programs Mm -hmm. has moved to this much lighter, uh, much more sort of white-friendly idea of diversity. That is the main justification now uh, before the law uh, for these affirmative action programs uh, to exist. But what happens with Asian Americans is you have Asian Americans here aiding diversity, right? And at the same time, you have white admissions officers in order to please white alumni concerned about uh, their children getting into these universities, tweaking the system so that Asian Americans are less competitive in comparison to white candidates in this supposedly pure meritocratic colorblind system. Absolutely. And when I hear diversity as a goal it sounds to me like a perk for white people, like sprinkles on the Sunday. White people deserve to be on top, but to be surrounded by and quote-unquote learn from the people they're on top of. You know, diversity is something that is a good thing, and this just leads directly to, and listeners may know this, but it doesn't appear particularly in a lot of media conversations. You hear Harvard's very competitive, and Asian people and black and brown people are fighting for spots at Harvard. And it's like, those are the spots that are left over after we get through ALDC. And maybe you could explain what that is. First, to go back, the the main question becomes, who is diversity for? Exactly. And the diversity standard really was developed by Harvard as sort of an alternative justification for the equal opportunity programs that they were instituting in the 1960s and the 1970s as an alternative to recognizing that historically that they had excluded women, they'd excluded non-Protestant people, Catholics, and Jewish people, and that this was really a way for them to preserve a sort of elite student body that they wanted to sculpt in their own image. And so we have to kind of go back to that. We have to mention that. We have to note that when we're talking about the programs that we're talking about now. Mm -hmm. And what they created at the same time was this notion of legacy admits, right? The technical term for it 
our ALDC admits, and this includes athletes, legacy admits, the dean's preferred list, children of faculty and staff. These are all preferential treatment slots that were given out even before equal opportunity programs had come into play in the 1960s. This is, again, to preserve you know, privilege and wealth for a certain class of folks. And even now, when we look at white admissions to Harvard, 43% of them are non-competitive ALDC admits. And so the idea of preferential programs being just for black and brown students, for poor students, that's a recent development. Mm -hmm. Even now, right, we're talking about the large proportion of white students being admitted to Harvard via preferential treatment. And so now when we talk about what should these classes look like, and we have a case before the Supreme Court, which would basically make it impossible for elite universities to be able to bring in students who are not white, we have a situation in which we're solving a problem that's just for elite universities and in fact, inflicting that on the rest of society, and the results would be disastrous. Yeah. The results would be the resegregation of higher education. We'd be going back a century or more in time to a period in which campuses were less diverse than we could even imagine at this particular point. Well, and not to put too fine a point on it, but I think when people hear about Ed Bloom and plaintiff shopping and knowing that, oh, on the other days of the week, he's opposing voting rights. He is obviously, and his group are clearly not really concerned about equity across difference. But even besides that sort of consider the source argument, if this case wins in the court, it really doesn't mean anything extra good for Asian Americans. Like it's not, you know, the the people who are nominally the plaintiffs here, the cases themselves don't have anything in particular to do with Asian Americans in terms of their likely outcome? Well, we're talking about a group that calls itself Students for Fair Admissions. And the important thing to note is that they've never produced any students in any of the testimony, and they've never presented any Asian Americans in their testimony. And so that goes to tell you, right. you know, at least on the surface. It's not a class on, action. You, it's not a class it's not action. A, it's yeah. not a class action suit. And the other thing to, to, to note is that, look, there's more Asian Americans who are enrolled in San Francisco City College than there are in the entirety of the Ivy Leagues. And so if the argument here is that this is going to support opportunity for Asian Americans in the main, that's not the case. We're talking about a small number of Asian Americans who are applying to this elite university in numbers below 1,000 probably every year, and or in the low thousands probably across the Ivy Leagues every year. So very much not so the majority of Asian Americans. Well, and that leads me to media coverage because, you know, media are certainly tossing around and we can expect more of it. Just Asian American as a term, as though they're a monolith and that there was nothing of particular value in exploring different communities. Um, and I just wonder, what would you ask for from media in terms of addressing 
this. I mean, maybe hope for, maybe dream of, but what would good coverage look like? Yeah, I think good coverage would include this long, long history that Asian Americans have had of participating in arguing for equal opportunity programs, for affirmative action programs, for civil rights programs. It would be much more, I think, realistic about the way that Asian Americans actually feel about affirmative action in this particular moment in history, which is that they support it. And I think that it would be much fairer about looking at what the real needs are of Asian Americans across the board. Asian Americans are standing against Ed Bloom and his anti-affirmative action cohort because they know that what's best is equal opportunity for all, right? And I think that that's something that is really downplayed in the media, where there's a focus instead on the minority of Asian Americans who have been advocating against affirmative action and against desegregation in public schools and public high schools in a select number of cities on the coast. And so that's, I think, what would be a much more realistic view of where Asian Americans stand uh, in relationship to this issue. So it has to do with who they talk to, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think it also has to do with the lack of understanding of what Asian Americans have been through historically in the U.S. and how our communities have been shaped. And so it's really part of a larger thing about representation of Asian Americans in our in our true light and our full humanity. We've been speaking with Jeff Chang. You can find his piece headed Asian Americans spent decades seeking fair education, then the right stole the narrative online at theguardian.com. Jeff Chang, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. Some corporate news media tell a story about opponents to affirmative action in education and elsewhere as working with communities to promote a more equal playing field for all ethnicities. But as Counterspin heard in conversation with Jeannie Park last fall, while it is critical to see that the group bringing the case against Harvard and the University of North Carolina is not a grassroots coalition of aggrieved Asian Americans, neither is it a case of one principled man on a mission. Jeannie Park is founding president of the Asian American Journalists Association in New York and co-founder of the Coalition for a Diverse Harvard. We spoke with her in November 2022. I think it's so important to realize that Ed Bloom um, didn't have folks knock down his door and say, we feel that we were unfairly treated on the basis of our race we, we, in, in terms of admission to colleges. In other words, the idea that it isn't that there's a large body of harmed people who are seeking redress, but instead a lawyer who is seeking, you know, something else, you know, what, whatever. I, I just feel that that is not necessarily the idea that you would get from, from news media coverage. 
So I think people have this idea that it's some big class action lawsuit, and in fact, it's not. In fact, there's a videotape of him speaking to, I believe, a Chinese-American group in Houston, and he says, you know, I failed with um, Fisher versus University of Texas, and so I, quote, needed Asian plaintiffs. You know, he actively goes out and seeks people from a certain race. And, you know, in the original trial um, in the suit against Harper, he had access to, he and his team, 150,000 um, admissions uh uh, cases, the data from 150,000 cases and actual files from from hundreds of actual admissions cases, they did not introduce a single file or a single case where they pointed to discrimination. So this is all um, very manufactured, but, you know, it plays into a certain amount of people kind of Again, like there is this stereotype out there, and so people have bought into it. And so when he feeds this information, people tend to believe it. And But the thing is, all along, this case was never about defending Asian Americans, never. In his case that he filed, the remedy that he sought was not to say, you know, make sure the admissions offices had more Asian American admissions officers or to make sure that the admissions office had training in, you know, implicit bias or how do you counter um, implicit bias against Asian Americans. Nothing that was specifically about Asian Americans. All he asked for was that he wanted the admissions process to be completely devoid of race. He did not want admissions officers to even know the race of any student who applied. And can you imagine how that would work? That would mean that, I mean, essentially you wouldn't need to know, you wouldn't be able to know the student's name. Students would not be able to write. I mean, let's say a student was the head of the Black Students Association at their high school or the Chinese Students Association at their high school, or let's say they worked on behalf of immigrant rights or wanted to talk about the the struggles of their um, community and their, you know, their community of color or, or their family's immigration story, you wouldn't be able to do that as a student. And so that would mean that students could not bring their whole self to the admissions process. Right, right. Well, let me ask you, you know, it's such a deep narrative conversation. Um, and news media aren't good at having it. You know, the very thing that you're talking about, about people being able to bring their whole selves to conversations, it's not the kind of thing that news media are great at representing. And I just, I, I just want to ask you, you know, if you were trying to talk in a positive way to reporters who were trying to present the idea of affirmative action in higher education and elsewhere – but just um, the whole idea of seeing the Ed Blooms for what they are and looking towards a positive future. Are there things that you would ask reporters to do or to not do or stories you'd like them to cover or things you'd like them to uh, avoid? Any thoughts about media? Well, I think certainly the media needs to do a better job of covering the solidarity among Asian Americans and other communities of color mm -hmm. in standing against this lawsuit and mm -hmm. in standing against all sorts of efforts to um, to 
you know, hold back racial justice efforts. And, you know, this is very much an effort to roll back rights, as we've seen over and over again with the Supreme Court. And, you know, um, affirmative action has been legal for and, and affirmed by the court numerous times for more than four decades. And so this is, again, a retrenchment, a rolling back. And I think it's important also for the media to not um, just take things that are fed to them by one side and not dig deeper into seeing what is misinformation and versus what is is truth. And I have to say, um, another part of the story that's been really overlooked by the media is who is behind this lawsuit. And so a piece that I and my colleague, Kristen Penner, who also works for the African-American Policy Forum, wrote recently, kind of exposes what's behind the lawsuit or who's behind the lawsuit. So Ed Bloom has made himself out to be the face of this effort. And the media has really covered him as being sort of like a, quote, one-man band, a one-man legal factor, you know, just a guy who's doing this in his living room. Right. In fact, he's been funded with millions of dollars from the far right, and he's been supported by lawyers and think tanks and media that are also connected to other fights. Um, you know, he also is responsible for the gutting of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which has led to all this attempted voter suppression that happened, I believe, in, in 2013. And so he is connected to a lot of um, concerted efforts to to take back the rights of people of color or or just to not even allow them to fully enjoy the rights that they were promised in the first place. Right. And by attacking voting rights, you know, it leaves us with no way even to address the other attacks, right? Because if we don't have representation in our government, we then, you know, don't have representation on the Supreme Court, or you see the direction in which the Supreme Court has turned. So I think it's it's digging deeper into understanding that a lot of these fights are connected, these fights for climate justice, environmental justice, LGBTQ plus rights, you know, rights for um, people of color and movements for racial justice, reproductive rights, immigrant rights. I mean, it is a very connected conservative movement. And if we're not aware of that, we can't fight it properly and, and, and fiercely as we need to. We've been speaking with Jeannie Park, founding president of the Asian American Journalists Association in New York and co-founder of the Coalition for a Diverse Harvard Thank you so much, Jeannie Park, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much, Jeannie, and I really appreciate this time. That was Jeannie Park of the Asian American Journalists Association in New York and the Coalition for a Diverse Harvard speaking with Counterspin last November. And that's Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. The show is engineered by Riley Baer. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.